0: That is such a high premium to pay for a job that's so incredibly important that it is one of our best pathways to nation building. Good politics is an investment in who we can be as a people and in the crazy potential of the dreams of our generation. And it's an investment worth making, but it's just such a prohibitively high social economic investment for some people that they simply can't even enter the game.
1: All right. So let's do this thing.
0: All right.
1: Before we dive in, I just quickly want to introduce Mission Hummingbirds to you all. Mission Hummingbirds is proud to support and sponsor Blackbird, the podcast. Mission Hummingbirds' commitment to amplifying diverse voices and promoting meaningful conversations is aligned with the mission of Blackbird. To bring critical conversations to the forefront, Blackbird is so proud to be associated with Mission Hummingbirds. Good morning from Pennsylvania, USA, Maria.
0: <laughs> Hi, Brishali. I'm happy to join you from London, United Kingdom. But my heart <laughs> is always at home in India, and very much caught up in Indian politics and policy. I'm just here uh, because I'm studying at the London School of Economics and I hope to segue back into uh, the Indian policy scene and the gov- and working within the government.
1: And that's like something that I've pretty much kind of thought you'd be doing ever since I met you. How old were you when we met?
0: I think I was about 17. <laughs>
1: See, it's been a while and that's like yes. Since the beginning, I think I've always felt this thing where you know, you you were going to do this kind of stuff, like anything to do with like policy or politics or things like that, because our conversations have always been like that and I am so happy to finally see you do that and you are in one of the best schools in the world doing exactly what you thought you would be doing, which is amazing. So congratulations on that.
0: Thank you so much. And I just hope that I can use, look, the sad truth is that certain knowledge power hierarchies exist in the world even today. And unfortunately, we place a premium on universities abroad uh, for a wide range of things. Understandably so, because they offer certain things that we have not yet been able to create in India. And I hope that we can soon. Uh, but I hope to take this uh you know educational capital and social capital that uh, and the credibility that the brand of lse provides me and hope to like uh, create progressive policy for everyone in india and that's always been the dream
1: that's amazing and also you've just been helping the uk as a csw delegate to those who don't know csw is the commission on the status of women uh, it's uh, it's a it's basically a congregation that convenes each year where member nations of the UN uh, and of the CSW in particular get together and negotiate between uh, certain issues or themes that um, come up each year with regards to gender and the status of women, which is also inclusive of gender and sexual minorities. And Maria was able to do it together with uh, the uk and contribute to the process moving on to some of the questions that i had in my mind because um, so public policy is also something that um, i am trying to advocate feminist public policy for india and at the global level with uh, my collective feminist munch. women from around diversities in from india who are coming together and doing this and it's it's such an empowering space actually the whole idea is to push for feminist policies in india and globally and wherever possible honestly and Mm -hmm. we started with the csw and now we are looking at you know being a little more local and more rooted in the grassroots uh so which is because we are a, a bunch of young people we are women from the cities we are women from the grassroots we have people participating uh, right from very small villages in jharkhand and in up and then we have you know people like me who've who've always who've been brought up in cities and somehow have found a way to be included in this process so that just kind of got me thinking that the end goal is to influence public policy for us and mm. um, which is what got me thinking about how I could you know talk to you about it because that's your end goal also (laughs) so absolutely
0: yeah yeah. so I
1: just thought I think it would be very interesting to have this conversation and but definitely you know being in the space as young people it's it's very very challenging to kind of just swim through the process even get to you know, get close to people who are actually influencing policies right now. So what would you say are some of the major challenges that the youth face uh, in terms of being included in the public policy process, decision-making processes, uh, particularly in India?
0: There are very compelling reasons why young professionals, and especially women, uh, don't consider politics as an avenue worthy of their potential. There's a very abject and real criminal element. An unprecedented number of elected officials are criminals. Uh, There's often this idea that the legacy of female politicians only come in through political families and treat treat their constituencies as jaggers uh, or the proxy beti behen element that they call it. And there is a perceived incompetence of people who don't come from these backgrounds and especially of young women and a lack of their fundraising potential, uh, because politics and policy is expensive. um, And you often have to be in political power in India to exude any kind of influence uh, in public policy. And I kind of wanted to talk about this as well, is that I I really hope that we do not de-link how political uh, and inherently political Public policy is so being a part of public policy is a political decision that we make, and the kind of public policy we seek to create is also a an ideological uh, decision that we make. Um, so I just want I just think that because we see politics sometimes as something that's so that's a last resort or dirty or something that inherently corrupts you, we fail to recognize the really colossal costs that come with leaving the most pivotal decisions to people. Who are in politics just by virtue of their legacy or their inadequacy to choose other professions so i think that the stakes are too high for us to settle for that um and i think that if we understand the implications of allowing this uh, to become something uh, that's a last resort the implications are unfortunate because if covid taught us anything it is that young people and young professionals deserve a voice in governments governance on every issue from child mortality to sexual violence to maternity leave to menstrual hygiene to early marriage and we can benefit from the expertise of young professionals even on things like economy ecology the healthcare immigration and the pandemic so there is something for everyone and i just think that we need to highlight like the wide breadth of expertise that's needed in politics as well as public policy and that we don't look at it through the microcosm of like uh, the lens that like um, you know it's something that's for the uh, for legacy uh, politicians or it's something just for like uneducated goons or it is something that we need to consider inherently corrupt or evil and i think that once there is that reckoning in our middle class circles we can truly revolutionize or what politics can mean for us here in India.
1: that is such an important point and that also kind of takes me back you know to um, uh, when when we are talking say dynasty politics or uh, something on those lines it's it's very interesting to kind of see this happening. It's not like people are alien to this concept because it's it also happens uh, say in panchayat elections, right so now we have uh, seats for women. Uh, that are like set only for women so when women get elected at as say the serpents or the head of the village uh it's usually the husbands who take over the seat <laughs> and then they look over you know the the local governance in the village it's also very interesting to see that pattern if you if you're looking at the more uh, um, you know the grassroots level of this, and it, it's it's a very interesting space, and I think um, obviously like this also. Uh, ensures that young people you know again remain more excluded except if you are the son of the said lady who just got elected <laughs> as a sarpanch then he might have a chance so that's the only place where youth kind of come into play but surely there are um, movements youth-led movements um, in rural uh, areas in the Indian grassroots uh, but then again you know because it's young people they are not given mm-hmm. as much of you know, importance or as much of a space to actually just go do their thing.
2: So where does youth participation happen? We can think about it in a few different ways. We can think about how it happens in different spheres of a young person's life. Uh, In their private sphere, at home, among their family and uh, brothers and sisters within the household. A young person playing a part in the decision making uh, within their home. We can think about participation happening within institutions such as schools or healthcare or the judiciary and a young person's uh, ability to voice their opinions and their ideas and their needs and wants within those decision-making structures. And of course we can think about participation in the broader community and in society as a whole when we think about political participation or participation within consultations about public policy and how we want our communities to be designed. As you can see, participation happens both in private realms, uh, within our own uh, small communities and in our households, but also in the public realm, in the larger world around us. We also know that participation happens both individually and collectively. A young person on their own can decide to participate in an online consultation to give their own personal view on a particular issue. Collectively, young people can decide to join forces together to organize amongst themselves and to uh, create groups or collectives or networks. And together, they would decide to speak with one voice uh, to represent their collective needs and ideas.
1: What are the ways you think that we can ensure that such voices and the voices of youth are heard in public policy spaces and discussions and the general decision-making process?
0: I think that we need to make people aware of I think there has to be first and foremost, like an outreach from our political parties. There has to be active mentorship opportunities for young people to kind of shadow bureaucrats or shadow politicians and see them as they go through their day to day uh, duties. There are a number of uh, fellowships uh, like that uh, for youth in the Western world, for example, in the UK and US, where you can shadow MPs and MLAs or bureaucrats and understand, uh, quote unquote, a day in their life. I think those kind of programs are really important for youth to kind of build a network, to understand know-how and to just get a foot in the door in like these really opaque systems. And I think that's like one great conduit um, to, to do that. But I also think that um, just in general, as a starting point uh, to kind of create this, uh, to kind of unravel the myths that, politics is only for like a certain kind of person uh and i think that starts very young and i think that starts at least with women it's very few women will tell you that they want to grow up and be a politician it's just something that is seen as a very unbecoming uh for young girls to say uh and i think that for that we need to not just uh, you know, have gender sensitization campaigns and better sex education. But we also need to like, uh, celebrate our female leadership, not just as a footnote in history. Uh, we need to acknowledge our female figureheads and our, uh, as we and have them be celebrated for the powerhouses that they are. And when young girls see that, okay, these are ideals that seem achievable, this was somebody who was just like me. Who was who did get their voice heard in the largest corridors of power? And I I just think telling those stories right in the beginning uh, is incredibly important uh, for young people and especially for young girls to feel like uh, their voices matter and will be heard one day, even if it's in it's a, whether it's in the panchayat or in the parliament. Uh, so yeah, I think like active outreach by political parties and better storytelling about what politics means to us, uh, especially to young people.
2: How do we know when it's meaningful? Fundamentally, participation is about power holders, those who have the ability to make decisions, sharing their power with young people. But how do we measure the quality of this? How do we know when participation is meaningful? There are several different frameworks and models that exist out there. And one of the most famous is Roger Hart's Ladder of Participation. Let's have a look at the Ladder of Participation. It's an eight-level model for children and young people's participation proposed uh, by Roger Hart but built on other things in the past. At the bottom three rungs, we see non-participation. This is manipulation, decoration and tokenism. The five participation rungs which are assigned, consulted, adult-initiated, shared decisions with young people, young people-initiated and directed, and young people-initiated and shared decisions with adults. The bottom three non-participation rungs, we often say are things that should be avoided. This is where young people aren't genuinely participating. They don't have enough power to affect change, to actually influence the decision. And you can criticize a participation activity for being tokenistic or for using young people if it ends up on these three rungs.
1: It's it's always been a certain kind of um, perception that people have about you, especially if you're a young woman. And uh, it's either like, you know, people are very impressed or it's like, you know, like, just why, you know, everything is the same, like, nothing is going to change. Uh, Indian politics is corrupted, like, what changes are you going to bring to it? It's always going to be the same. It's always the bribes, it's always at this and always at that. But I think uh, that that kind of perception and that kind of thinking needs some tweaking, uh, especially for young people, because, um, you know, the older ones are, uh, trying to kind of with these conversations trying to discourage people who might be even minutely interested in these subjects in school or you know in college like civics was one thing right like in school Mm -hmm. we had we had civics like right at the back of the history
0: book (laughs) you're so right oh no that's so true and I think it's also a choice Uh, that we actively made to not see our nation through a pacifistic prison, right? So we see that we are the post-colonial destiny of our country. And we saw the palpable discontent across the nation that spilled over into our streets during CA. That was only tempered because of the pandemic. I don't know if you've heard this quote from Chicago 7, but it goes, uh, the institutions of our democracy are wonderful things, but right now they're populated by some terrible people. And I really resonate with that. And I think that the professionalization of politics can be uh, that panacea to everything that ails our system today. And I also think that like just being involved in the pluralistic democracy of our country is how we can create a better political landscape uh, for the demographic it affects the most, which is the youth. So India has like 600 million people, which are under the age of 25, which is the highest in the world right now. Uh, and although we're so young demographically, our political class does not reflect this. The average age of a Lok Sabha MP is typically over 50. Uh, so I think that like these are active choices that we need to enable uh, uh our best and brightest to make. And um, I hope that like in both our careers, we're able to enable more young people and especially young women to be involved in the progressive politics that will be uh that will define India as we know it and as they know
1: it. Absolutely. And I always see this in the news sometimes, like it just comes up that um, there's, you know, a new uh, young MP being elected or an MLA being elected. And it's always such a news. And when you actually like think about, the, the youth population and the general ratio of young people in this country it it just does not represent that at all right like we mm-hmm. should be everywhere we should be everywhere we should be in these spaces and we should be owning these spaces but unfortunately that's not the case and there's a plethora of reasons like we've, we've spoken about some right now but that kind of takes us to accessibility because um it's mm-hmm. Certainly, there are, there is a reason why young people are not kind of in the process because of these set perceptions. But then there's all, also the question of accessibility. How much, even if they know about these processes, how much accessibility do they actually have with them? And obviously, the apprehensions that come with it. So I think my next question would be something on the lines of, um, you know, this Particular thing with accessibility being very difficult for youth that come from minority groups, for Muslim mm. youth, for Dalit youth, uh, for tribal youth. Um, in fact, a lot of the representation of youth that we see in uh, active politics or public policy per se would be coming from these communities because they've been heard, because they've been in a position to do everything and ensure that their voices are heard. So. The, the kind of representation that we get would be some of it i would say from marginalized communities but obviously that is not enough accessibility i think kind of affects them the most in terms of being in these spaces what would you think are um, some of the specific challenges that minority youth face in terms of you know being included in public policy decision making and the participatory processes that public policy banks
0: absolutely I think that um I can't speak to the hardships of all minorities within India because I still am a very a fairly privileged Muslim woman who decided to join a political party at 19 years old and uh, my parents supported me even though I come from a completely non-political family so I do think that I am a slightly different case in that regard but I I, I can talk about myself and I can talk about uh, the very real uh, challenges of knowing that uh, people told me that like I had a massive demographic disadvantage number one I was a woman and uh, second I was a a Muslim woman so uh, I think that I just don't believe in the politics of last names or that of victimhood Uh, so I made it I for me to join or align with a party is just a realization of a long cherished dream I have wanted to build this idea of India I believed in since girlhood. I knew that the leaders we like, the policies we curate, and the brand of politics we endorse are the paramount questions on which we can build our idea of India. And I think that the biggest issue that comes with youth from these communities joining politics is that politics is not a paid job. Politics is something that is so incredibly resource intensive when it comes to campaigning for your party, which is mostly a volunteering position, or whether it is making those initial networks through unpaid internships or very low paid stints within government organizations. Or, uh, you know, Being allowed into these political spaces uh, with the kind of respect and dignity uh, that you should be accrued to. Sometimes that doesn't happen, especially for young people from these communities. They are simply not welcome uh, within the frameworks that currently exist. And to that, I have to say, we have a long way to go for like creating those systems. But for now, what we can do, and if we feel like we have the agency to do that, we can disrupt. At least we can create those small disruptions to to make the space for other people who come after us to have a slightly easier time. Um, So I think that when I started working with the Arm Army Party, I was campaigning in Goa. And at the time um, I was not paid anything. Uh, And I had just graduated out of St. Xavier's College uh, with a BA in political science. And a lot of my friends had gone into Bain and McKinsey and had a very, very fat pay package. And then I told my parents that I want to take up an unpaid stint, grassroots campaigning as a 19 year old woman uh, uh, in Goa. And for them to be okay with that, and also for them to bear the cost of my travel and uh, other allied expenditures, uh, came from a very privileged space. And I know that a lot of uh, people aren't afforded that degree of privilege. So I think that I hope that we can create systems that. Remunerate youth for the effort that they put in in uh, being a part of the political process. A very big part of that is having paid opportunities in the policy and politics space. Uh, Politics is public service, but one can only do public service if they can make ends meet in their house. Otherwise, uh, we are literally incentivizing corruption and a broken system and uh, only allowing the most privileged to partake in these conversations
1: unpaid gigs should be banned (laughs) absolutely banned and i think in india it's more so you know like that i I think um exposure uh, do it for your exposure and things like that It, it, it just it does not gel with me very well and i understand the lack of resources but what are you saying like if you're running a political party that's fairly successful let's say you definitely can afford to pay your young intern. You can definitely afford to pay your young campaigner because you are recruiting these people on the basis of their um, passion and what they believe in. And then you, you know, choose to not pay them for it. It's, it just does not sit right. <laughs> I think that's, Absolutely. yeah. And also, th- this is even more so, I feel, um, um, for someone who's, say, you know, not coming from a city and coming from a small town or from a s- small village, who's as passionate and probably 10 times smarter than someone who's, you know, who's done it by the books. But this is someone who's coming with their own experiences and trying to change up and shake things up and disrupt systems. But they're unable to do that because they don't have the resources to support them after thereafter, mm-hmm. to just live in that new place that they're going to or just, you know, arrange their food or things like that, which is awful. And this is very important. And I'm very glad you brought this up, that this is probably one of the prime reasons that make it so difficult for young people, especially young people coming from vulnerable and marginalized communities to have this kind of access, which is so, so basic in the first place access of basic survival and then you move on to you using your passion and your intelligence and your expertise in the area of public policy like the basic things are not handled
0: you're completely right and uh, i think that that is such a high premium to pay uh, for a job that's so incredibly important that it is one of our best pathways to nation building good politics is an investment in who we can be as a people and in the crazy potential of the dreams of our generation. And it's an investment worth making, but it's just such a prohibitively high social economic uh, uh, investment for some people that they simply can't even enter the game. Uh, so I think that making uh, it accessible, uh, the first thing is to do is to um, make sure that it it's actually a, a job that allows you to make ends meet. That would be my two cents on how uh, political parties can, uh, you know, do actual effective outreach and just not lip service to minorities. Give them paid fellowships, give them paid internships, give them paid jobs. Actually allow them to mobilize the capital you have, because otherwise it's just symbolism.
1: Absolutely. And tokenistic participation of young people in these processes needs to go so maria we when we talk about the participation of minority or marginalized youth in uh, the public policy decision making space um how can we you know ensure that their perspectives and their needs uh say someone coming from a minority religious background a muslim youth a muslim female youth like you um, or say a tribal youth or a caste minority youth are taken into account how, how do we make sure that their real perspectives and their real experiences because this is still an issue we are discussing here on this platform speaking in English which is accessible to uh, you know people who are educated in the language or come from urban spaces we are still being exclusionary in a way uh, <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. while attempting to do this so the experiences of such youth uh, from these various groups that I just mentioned, um, how can we ensure uh, that their perspectives are actually put into the system of public policy and decision making
0: I think the first thing we can do to change that is to shift the prism and not see these youth as data uh but to see them as actual agents in changing up the systems that they hope to be a part of, or they hope to disrupt. Uh, and kind of that just shift in the prism and allows for a much more participatory approach for these, uh, for these individuals. And I think that you're completely right. And uh, we are in the microcosm of a very elite chamber, but I think that as long as we make significant strides in like seeing and acknowledging that, uh, that's the first step. Because even within this microcosm of the English speaking elite, there is a very big, um, um, I, I feel like there's a massive apprehension while talking about politics. We are taught that politics and religion are not something we discuss at the dinner table but what we really should have been taught is that we need to find a civil way to talk about politics and religion. Uh, And so I think that podcasts like these are a brilliant conduit to speak to those uh, people. But beyond that, how can we include Dalit youth, tribal youth, Muslim youth in our policy and politics? Number one, I think the most obvious one is uh, representation that Enables uh, this this youth to not only be spoken to but to speak themselves. I think we've had too much of the microphone being held by other people to talk about our plight, uh, and I think that uh, we're all quite we're all quite tired of those narratives being taken from us, those stories being told for us, uh, and our voice being used as a plank by the opposition. Without the opposition making space for us to voice our own grievances, and I think that like we keep talking about representation, and yet when we see uh, that only eleven percent women in the Lok Sabha, we don't have a singular Muslim MP in the Lok Sabha uh, at this point. Uh, so you know it's 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 quite jarring uh, to be honest uh, when it comes to scheduled caste representation. There are lots of communities within the scheduled caste uh, community that are still completely underrepresented. And we kind of have to talk about the issue of quota within a quota uh, to to remember that uh, as, as we continue to partake in affirmative action, we need to reimagine that affirmative action uh, among those that are the most disenfranchised as well. Um, So these are complex and nuanced issues that resist any simple solutions. Uh, But I think that a starting point is real representation with these youth holding the mic. And uh, number two is that like looking at them not as like passive agents, but as active uh, citizens who are in charge of their own narrative, not just a vote bank uh, that you can fall back on when it's convenient for your political party.
1: Absolutely. And also seeing this, like, you know, um, there are all of these structural barriers that come into play. Um, uh, Social exclusion or uh, discrimination, gender discrimination or social uh, exclusion in terms of uh, if you are a tribal youth, if you are a Dalit youth, if you are a Muslim youth. Uh, So even if you have the resources of being in that place or the accessibility of being in these spaces to make your voice heard, you're still being, you know, subjected to this kind of discrimination and this kind of exclusion. So I think the end, at the end of the day, I mean, apart from ensuring that their perspectives are taken into consideration, while they may be, there are always these other structural barriers that stop or even discourage very horribly for young people to make their voices heard. And I think in in the recent times, they've also seen, it shouldn't be innumerable cases of Young people who are dying by suicide, young Dalit uh, youths and students who are dying by suicide uh, because of these structural barriers, because of this certain kind of discrimination and social exclusion. So, I think you know, just to be even mindful about how um, we uh, perceive and how we act towards these things, and I feel like. People like us who, uh, you know, students of um, social sciences or again, I won't say it's like an uh, it's it's an exclusive group because uh, we've seen how that turns out also on certain occasions. But, you know, people who are more um, exposed to this this nature of um, social sciences or understanding, you know, some sort of nuances in this space, we might be able to understand how to go about these things when we are talking about including people from marginalized groups mm-hmm. but the normal the common Indian would not be thinking about these things at all um, when they are surrounded or they are in groups uh, uh, with people uh, who come from marginalized communities not it doesn't even take a second for uh, you know them to not be mindful gatekeeping these things and i think a lot more conversations need to be had and again like you said it's it's a long long way to go but um, keeping in mind that discrimination and social ec- exclusion plays a very very important role in um, how the youth uh, especially marginalized youth remains excluded from political conversations and public policy irrespective of um, you know how much they know and how much experience or how much expertise they bring to the table are there ways are there measures that we can take to um, build a certain kind of capacity uh, within youth to participate in public policy discussions and what would they be how do you think like this should be starting in schools at home or anything other perspectives that you have with this
0: i think that like on current news media does a massive disservice Uh, we know that it locks us into echo chambers we know that whatsapp groups uh, have a toxic tenacity to make you believe exactly what you already believe just strongly more strongly uh we know that uh, social media is becoming uh is pushing you to a to a greater extreme no matter what opinion it is that you seek to hold so we are in this uh we are kind of locked into a parallel universe that, and the person probably sitting next to us at the dinner table is experiencing a completely different world than we are and they're completely locked out of ours because of certain algorithms and the way things are designed. Um, so I think that uh, more than ever today at school, we need to realize the value of conversation with people that we do not align with and how to disagree. I think that it's incredibly important we learn how to disagree without fundamentally negating somebody's identity, existence, or experience. There is room for civil disagreement. There is room to debate respectfully. There is room for understanding the other person uh, beyond just saying the talking points that we've heard. And I think that that comes with an incredible amount of uh, empathy. It comes from a great uh, need to uh, actively listen, to actively acknowledge uh, oppression, systemic injustice, uh, and the lived experiences of the many minorities of our brilliant and beautiful nation. And I think just kind of building the allies from the people that we like to Name call, either Sanghi or the uh, the horrible L word liberal. Uh, I think if we are able to b- build those cohesion, the uh, uh, that kind of that co- kind of cohesion within conversation and the kind of middle ground, uh, while not necessarily compromising on everything we believe in, uh, is something that we need to build within our youth
1: that was honestly so well put and i would also go ahead to say that you know uh, these conversations might um come across as taboo and people don't want to talk about it because there's a certain element of fear um and which i would say as someone who is producing a podcast and putting actively all of this stuff outside and you know actively trying to push these conversations out um, there there certainly is a certain certain kind of um nervousness about it, but I know I'm most likely doing the right thing. <laughs> and also just the general idea of, you know, how uh in fear of your life you are in um when you're having these conversations openly, which wasn't the case like 15 years ago, right? Like you you could openly be critical and now it's just a scary prospect especially um i would say for someone like me who's already been attacked by certain people and it was awful and then anyway that's a whole long uh podcast episode (laughs) (laughs) but um it's it's i'm very happy that you brought all of this up because it is very very relevant um to what we are talking about today And it's very, very necessary to build this certain kind of capacity between young people, because I think if you look around and mainly on social media, because that's our version of looking around now. uh, So when you look around online, you come across uh, young people and, you know, there are sometimes these certain kind of comments on Facebook or it might be, you know, just very weird kind of engagement. And. Sometimes
0: just a mental health tip don't ever
1: read the comments, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean it's but that's the thing right I can't even stop myself from doing that because you want to know what the conversation is. you want to know what people are talking about. So if you just you know drop the comments uh, button down and you see all all these things, especially when you're expecting something like that to be there. it's so disheartening, right and so discouraging to see people your age or even younger than you just um, Ah, uh, being a part of uh, all of this like communal jargon and um, being a part of uh, divisive politics and um, uh, things like that. Definitely, it's it's very very important to have these conversations, and have these conversations at the dinner table. Have these conversations everywhere and across the spectrum of generations.
0: Um, How very but- western of us to say dinner table. Uh, my family eats in a thal. Uh, seven people in one thal, um, and uh, most most of us uh, grew up eating on the ground, so there was really no dinner table. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think like the point still sticks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, that's that's still the uh, that's still the case in my house. So for sure definitely <laughs> and honestly I would say nothing better than sitting on the floor and eating your food with your hands
0: absolutely skin heightens the sense of taste
1: yeah we absolutely. I, I just it's it's very strange to sit on a dinner table and do that like as I speak right now in the US because I'm not used to that concept really but mm-hmm. uh, yeah nothing absolutely nothing better than sitting on the floor doing the dirty work and putting that in your
0: <laughs> maybe do many conversations without the colonial hold on our tongue maybe unlearn that over a yeah, lifetime I
1: agree I agree do you have um you know your own experiences or any other examples of um a successful youth led initiative uh, in india that has been able to influence or even to just shadow the public policy uh, scenario in india
0: um i'd actually uh, come up with the idea of creating aasha niti which is uh, which was my startup uh, that i would uh, you know incubated with snla and Haya, uh, which are two organizations that incubate like early stage, political, social startups in India. And the idea was essentially to uh, bridge uh, this knowledge gap, the mentorship gap and the opportunities gap. So what I was trying to do with Ashaniti was to make sure that young people have people that they can shadow around to understand uh, the specific jobs that they do, that there are educational modules uh, that allow them to demystify the public policy uh, and politics space, that they are coupled with mentors uh, who will allow them uh, a foot in the door that is the most elusive step and will give them opportunities that are both paid and that, are worthy of their potential. Um, so that was my uh, idea that I hope to work on when I'm back in India. But beyond Arshaniti, which is, which is my pet project, there is also the Indian School of Democracy, which I've been closely associated with. It's a brilliant place uh, for kind, uh, progressive and empathetic politics that we so desperately need
1: It's just incredible, you know, when you are in this space with other young people, other like-minded young people, especially, who are doing everything to push for uh, young participation in Indian politics or in public policy. What are some of the policy recommendations you would make to promote greater youth participation in the area of public policy?
0: Uh, Number one is uh, create a space for meritocratic, I know that's a a abused word, but a a meritocratic entry into politics uh, beyond legacy politicians. Number two is create actual opportunities uh, for the youth within these spaces to be able to make ends meet, uh, to be able to provide for themselves and their homes, as well as uh, be on a purpose-driven career of nation building. The third one is that uh, within these programs, there is space for affirmative action from those for those that are uh, systemically disenfranchised, whether that is Muslims, Christian, uh, uh, or SCST youth, uh, youth from rural areas, and the many communities that are invisible and that I have that I am spoken of, and that I do not have uh, uh, the education to be able to name. Um, maybe always remember the talisman given to us by Gandhi ji, that uh, we should always think of the most vulnerable person at the end of the line, and then and then reverse engineer our policy to meet those people's needs. So yeah, those are uh, my three recommendations, and I hope that I can at least. Uh, begin to work on one
1: of them thank you so much and this was such an incredible conversation i cannot believe we finished off two of my zooms for 40 minutes (laughs) (laughs) so this was honestly very very energizing i also feel inspired and motivated today after this conversation i really absolutely want to further um, look into what I can do with this podcast and uh, what I can do with the blog uh, uh, just
0: uh, just going to uh, plug my blog in which is new <laughs> brilliant and we can't wait to see all the incredible things you are going to do and you're already doing and we are so proud of you thank you so much for Shari for having me